0: This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast covering our books on the environment, politics, religion, history, law, and biography. I'm excited to welcome our guest today, R.J.M. Blackett, author of Samuel Wrinkled Ward, A Life of Struggle. R.J.M. Blackett is a historian of the abolitionist movement whose books include The Captive's Quest for Freedom, Fugitive Slaves, the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law and the Politics of Slavery, and Making Freedom, the Underground Railroad and the Politics of Slavery. He is the Andrew Jackson Professor of History Emeritus at Vanderbilt University and lives in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, we're here to talk about Blackett's new book on Samuel Ringgold Ward. This is the inaugural title of the Black Lives series at Yale University Press. Yale University Press's Black Lives series seeks to tell the fullest range of stories about both notable and overlooked Black figures who profoundly shaped world history. Samuel Ringold Ward is such an excellent first biography for this series. I'm so excited to be with you here today, Richard. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Ward, you know, was a leading 19th century figure in the struggle for Black freedom citizenship and equality. Yet, you know, our listeners might be more familiar with abolitionists of Ward's time, such as Frederick Douglass or white abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. Can you first um, start off by telling us more about Ward's life in person and discuss why until now his story has been largely untold?
1: Let's start from the last part of your question. I think is we know so little about Ward because Of all of his contemporaries, Ward left the United States, never to return. Uh, And it's my contention when people leave the United States, they walk off the pages of its history. So that's why I think we know little about Ward. But Ward was born enslaved on the eastern shore of Maryland in 1817, Uh, escaped with his parents when he was just under three years old, and interestingly, I didn't know he was a slave until he was 24 and a pastor in upstate New York when his mother divulged a secret of his past, not to war directly, but to his wife. And it's always intrigued me what, what his reactions were. I, he never tells us what his reactions were in his autobiography. Uh, but I suspect he had a pretty good idea that he, was, he wasn't a free black. Uh, and Ward became very, a very prominent figure in the anti-slavery movement, in the struggle against slavery, and also in the fight in New York to, for blacks to reacquire their rights to vote. Uh, which were denied them earlier on in the century. Not totally denied them, but uh, they had to pay a certain amount of money in order to vote. Uh, And Ward became a leading figure in the Liberty Party, which was the first major third party uh, in the United States in the 19th century that attempted it. It was a one-issue party, uh, the abolition of slavery uh, and contested a couple presidents election, presidential elections in the 1840s and and were were trounced. Uh, but w- Ward, Ward remained adamant that uh, you couldn't vote for a party that didn't that had in its ranks slaveholders. Uh, he says it's a contradiction in terms. And for blacks who continued to vote for the Whig Party as opposed to the Democratic Party, Ward was unrelenting in his criticism. Um, and in eighteen fifty, 1850, in eighteen fifty-one, following the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law, Ward left. He had participated in a in the rescue of a famous rescue uh, case in Syracuse, uh, and decided that it was time to leave the United States. Uh, partly because he thought he would be in trouble, but more, he had already decided. He and his wife already decided that there was little for them to do in the United States, and they should go somewhere else. Uh, part of the reason is that Ward, in spite of his better efforts, his preparation, his uh, and the fact that he was he was self-taught, largely did all the things that America said uh, a person should do in order to achieve. Uh, the dream of American citizenship, uh, Ward was always deeply in debt. And I think this was one of the things that drove him to look elsewhere. So he went to Canada. And subsequently, he went, uh, he worked with the Canadian uh, Anti-Slavery Society, and they sent him on a mission to raise money to help uh, in in, in, in sort of... Protecting fugitive slaves in Canada, and Ward remained in England a couple of years. His mission was very successful, but at the end he decided not to return here, and it's it, it's a for a whole number of reasons uh, he went to Jamaica where he settled, and where ultimately we lose him. We don't know wh- when he died. We don't know. Uh, we suspect it somewhere in the late. 1860s so that basically is is the outline of his his life
0: overview <laughs> thanks for thanks for providing that and I, and I really do want to dive a little bit into you know his various identities which you've kind of talked a little bit about but you know I'm I'm really interested in your use of archival documents in constructing this biography and you know you mentioned there are major gaps especially in his later life um, but you know, what what was the um, research and writing process like for this book? and can you tell us more about you know the archives that you used, either from if there's you know archives from his work in the Liberty Party or as a missionary? I'd love to hear you talk about that. Uh,
1: w- Many years ago, I published a book on a collection of essays on on lesser-known nineteenth century black figures, and I had intended to include Ward. but he at the time, he was very elusive, much more elusive than, <laughs> than later on I discovered. Uh, but there were so many gaps that I couldn't fill that I decided not to, to include him because the, the book was already much too long. Uh, and so I set it aside. And when this the chance to, to write this book for the new series at the press, I, d- I offered to do uh, this book on Ward, and it gave me an opportunity to go back into it. So I had already collected a lot of information on him, particularly his years in England, uh, where I first ran across him because I was writing a book on black Americans who had gone to England in the antebellum period in an effort to win international support for emancipation. And Ward was a pivotal figure in that struggle in the 1850s. So I had some information, archival information, that I had gotten largely out of the, the anti-slavery papers that were then housed at Ro- uh, in Rhodes House at, at Oxford University, uh, British newspapers that I had mined for the, for the first book I was writing. Uh, so I supplemented since the, the 1970s when I was working in that other book, uh, we have had a, uh, some significant collections, for instance, the black abolitionist papers, uh, that were invaluable. So they did some work for me. Uh, and then I also mind, Ward was an editor for a brief period uh, in the 1840s uh, in upstate New York, and I managed to get information from his newspapers, uh, uh, those that have survived. Um, and I also was able to find information from the American Missionary Association, which was an anti-slavery organization formed in the middle 1840s to, uh, because those who were participating in that missionary association had given up on traditional missionary associations because they refused to exclude slaveholders. So that, that, those provided me with some... Additional information, uh, and then I found I managed to f- find some some critical pieces uh, in the Jamaican archives, uh, but that that was it. But uh, but Lord, the, the the end of his life is really a, a total mystery to me.
0: Yeah, and you know, as we mentioned, you know this this book was prepared for the Black Lives series here, and it, and it's the first title in this mm-hmm. series. Um, and the series has a really great advisory board of scholars from both, you know, here at Yale and, and Harvard, such as David Blight and Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Jacqueline Goldsby. You know, d- how, what was the process of shaping the book for the series with the series editors with all of these archival documents and, and all the gaps as well? Well, I
1: didn't have much to do. I, I mean, David Blight and I are old friends. Mm-hmm. We go back many years because we have common interests. Mm-hmm. Um, uh but they 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 weren't an intrusive editorial group uh they left me to do my own to my own devices uh, and i had more to do with the, the editor of at the press mm. uh and uh, i and i suppose we should thank covid uh because it meant that we were all locked down so what mm-hmm. i could do is simply uh get get to the business of writing the book and uh, it didn't take very long because I had a few distractions and plus the fact I, I was uh, recently retired, so mm-hmm. uh, I could just go into my study and 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 call up my old notes and go through the new materials. Um, and th- and I suppose thankfully I had donated all my notes to the archives at Vanderbilt, and they kindly found found them. They hadn't been processed, but. The, they found them, and and because we were all locked out and locked down, they managed to replicate, uh, duplicate it, and send me whatever materials were in those folders. And that was that was enormously helpful. So uh, th- that was the process of of getting the book together. Mm. Uh, the series editors uh, left me to my own devices. Nobody, mm. nobody, <laughs> nobody interfered <laughs> or intruded. So. Oh, I could get a, get on with doing it.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. And um I you know, I loved your anecdote of your own papers being in the archive and having to go back yes. to your own notes. That's that's yes. such a great story. Um and you know, I really loved reading this book. I think it's quite a, a accessible read. Um and I'd love to kind of go to Ward's um early life as a lecturer in Peterborough, New York. Mm-hmm. Um And, you know, we can remember Ward now through this biography as one of the leading orators of his time and and educators. Um, And I'm wondering if you could talk about Ward's own intellectual influences and how his friendships shaped um, the development of his thinking on abolition.
1: Mm. Uh, Ward attended that amazing uh, African free school in New York City that produced some of the finest... Uh, an array of leaders, black leaders, that were permanent throughout uh, the 19th century. They were at some, uh, not necessarily his classmates, but his schoolmates. And you could go through the list. They include Alexander Cromwell, who became who was who got his degree from Cambridge because he couldn't enter a seminary in the United States because he was black. Uh, James McEwen Smith, who got his degree, degrees medical and otherwise from Glasgow, because he couldn't get into a university in the United States be, because he was black. Um, William Howard Day, who who went to Oberlin, um, the, the the Henry Highland Garnett, um, they, um, Ward's cousin. Uh, these were all really prominent figures in the struggle. Uh, against slavery and, and racial hate and discrimination, uh, so that Ward, Ward got an early education in that school. Uh, that, and then he supplemented that with, uh, with tutors. Uh, so he was familiar with the classics. He was familiar with the traditional educational systems that existed. Uh, and then he was—significantly, he was self—a considerable portion of his education is what he did himself, working with individual tutors. Um, so that by the time he emerged as a figure on the anti-slavery circuit in the early 1840s, he's really well prepared, um, Unlike uh, say Douglas, his his good buddy, uh, his his close uh, his close uh, colleague with whom he had a, a very interesting relationship, uh, Ward, Douglas considered him as I think I opened the book uh, by showing mm-hmm. considered him the most uh, prominent orator of his time, far superior to as Doug, far as Douglas was concerned to any of his contemporaries. Uh, so he was a very gifted man. Uh, he was big, you know. He was he was over six foot. Uh, he was big in size as well, and uh, and contemporaries leave us descriptions of Ward that I think, in in give them our own modern sensibilities, uh, sails very close to race, racial stereotypes. You know, they are intrigued by his blackness. They're intrigued by his height and above all else, they're intrigued by his eloquence um, and his oratorial, uh, 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 his ability to to capture audiences wherever he went. And there are these long descriptions, whether it's in newspapers in the United States or in Britain, that talk, that emphasize these points about Ward. Uh, And he he had the gift of a cutting humor. Uh, and people say that you know he would be describing, he would be discussing very what we would call very de- depressing and very uh, important issues to audiences, and they could hear peals of laughter coming from the from the room. So he had that ability to to drive home his points with a, a, a degree of humor that captured his audiences. And he and Douglas made an incredible, incredible tandem, t- uh, sort of. Uh, dog and pony show tandem team that put, uh, put down racists wherever they encountered them, particularly in places like New York City. Mm. Um, so Ward had those sort of gifts, uh, and he, like many of his contemporaries, took his education, took the fact that he, had, he was educated and that he helped to educate himself very seriously. And that, to, to some extent... The the country's inability to recognise that I think really uh, caused them deep distress, personal and otherwise, uh, and that's something as a uh, that we in this in this day and age can only understand without feeling the kind of same pressures uh, that people like Ward must have felt, mm-hmm. and all the while, as I said earlier. The man is in debt. He just Mm -hmm. can't make ends meet. He Mm -hmm. can't. People won't pay him. I mean, the jobs that he did, the lecturing that he did. I mean, Ward must have lectured in every church in in New York, Mm -hmm. in in, in the state of New York and and elsewhere. And the money that he collected for the associations were never enough to keep him um, in house and home. Uh, So in that sense it's it's very it, it, it's a it's a, a sort of depressing story,
0: mm, right, yeah, and I think that's reflected in in the subtitle, right a life of struggle yes, yeah yeah, and we and i I don't, would like to come back to that, but um yeah i'm I'm really you know in the in the copy of the book we have written that you know Douglas really extolled Ward for his quote depth of thought, fluency of speech, readiness of wit, logical exactness, and it's really interesting to hear you talk about them, you know, working in tandem, but also that you know wards wit and humor could become sharpness and that could not be received, you know well by his um contemporaries but you know i'm really interested in learning more about you know wards um role as a congregationalist minister as an ordained congregationalist minister because he was serving as a black pastor at several white churches um which you write about um and, you know, I'm wondering, you know, what was the relationship between his politics of abolition and his preaching? What was, you know, was that fraught? Um, you know, <laughs> I, it seems uh, as if there was a lot of um, conversation about looking at the Constitution as an anti-slavery document mm-hmm. in his time and also pulling out, um, you know, religious foundations for abolition. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about the intersection of those in, in Ward's own um, congregation.
1: Uh well, Ward Ward uh, achieves something that uh, is u- unique in his time. As as you mentioned, he was a minister of a wi- of two white congregations in upstate New York. Um, none of his contemporaries, I can think of no other contemporary who d- did the same thing. So, it exposed him and his congregations to a lot of scrutiny about the relationship. But what, what intrigued me, and I think I talked a, li- a, little, a little bit about it in the book, is that his congregations remained white. I can find no evidence, and I may have missed something, I can find no evidence that he ever had any black members in the church, so that the only black members of his congregation were his family. Um... Uh, and that is that is a unique that is something unique because there were blacks uh, residents in the two counties in the two areas where he was where he pastored, but there were small there were small congregations, there were small churches. So, um, Ward's congregationalism, I I have not been able to find any evidence that pinpoints to why it is he became a congregationalist minister as opposed to an AME minister or Baptist ministers. Uh, but Ward was Ward was scathing, I, I think is the only word to use, about and and Douglas felt the same way and also talked about it, uh, that felt about uh, the traditions in of black ministers who stirred the passions of their congregation rather than their intellect. And Ward did not, could not abide uh, those folks who ranted and raved and preached hell and brimstone on Sundays and did very little otherwise to, in the struggle for, uh, for freedom. So as far as Ward was concerned, <laughs> he, he, left, he left some of his nastiest comments about uh, about some people uh, to black ministers, some black ministers in some churches in some parts, either in Canada or in the United mm-hmm. States. But he, he was against this, what he, what he saw as a proliferation of churches. He said 10 people got together, and, they, and uh, as a foreigner, uh, and this is personal now, as a foreigner— When I first came to the United States, I was absolutely intrigued by the number of churches uh, in this country. I thought there must have been lots of sinners uh, that you had. And the churches were on each corner. You could come to some intersection in any city that I visited, and there may be three churches on four corners of a, of a And, some, and, and the, the, the church across the road was also a Methodist church. It was, one was the first Methodist, and the other was the second Methodist. And for the life of me, I couldn't understand this proliferation of churches and the necessity. I later on came to realize about the internal politics of, of churches. Uh, but Ward was, Ward was passionately opposed to this sort of uh every man who felt the need could just go on and he thought that in many instances uh many of these uh black ministers were not trained uh not in the not in the class, not in the in the academic sense of the church, but uh they they were not deeply familiar with 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 the bible and its and its and what it provided, what it could provide. And for Ward then, as I said, he he left us a lot of information about how he felt about these people. Uh, But wherever he preached, uh, Ward attracted huge crowds because he had that gift both uh, to reach out to people, to communicate with his audience, but also he knew his stuff. And and uh, 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 Douglas is not a a, not a a religious kind of figure as Ward is, Uh, and I think um, he too was deeply familiar with the Bible and its. uh, uh, But that's something that I had to come to grips with, and this is a sort of is one of those personal stories. I mean, I was raised a Catholic in a. in another country. Um, and as a kid, we, Catholics didn't read the Bible. I mean, we read catechisms. We were told what to read uh, and how to read it. Uh, so the, 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 And then I married a, a Baptist woman, a, ba, a black Baptist woman. So when I was working on this ward book and he went off on his biblical tangents uh, and his exigencies, I had to call my wife and ask to borrow her Bible. So I could read what is happening in Ecclesiastes or whatever. But I never had that sort of visceral, organic kind of connection to the biblical stuff. So I may have missed a lot of what Ward—I I, I, I would readily admit I must have missed a lot of what Ward was getting at in some of his biblical quotations and his use of the Bible. But I think I— I managed to pick it up by just reading what the word was and what I thought it meant.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think in the book it, it's a great. Um, I think there is a very rich discussion of, of Ward's um, time as a minister and his religious thought. Although mm-hmm. that's not the entire book, right? Yeah, no, no, um. no.
1: It couldn't be for me because I would get nowhere. It would be yeah. ten pages.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, I I really um, resonate with your. Um, Insight that there are so many churches here. In, in, and I don't know if that's just in the Bible Belt, but even here in New Haven, you know, there are three churches on the main green and it kind of spreads out. So, um, and, you know, I was really interested, if we can just stay on this topic for, <laughs> for a second, um, about your mention of Amos Beeman in, in the book only a couple of times, I think only twice. Mm-hmm. Who um, is that? Amos Beeman. Oh, yes, Beeman, mm-hmm. yes, yes.
1: Mm-hmm. He, he has a Yale connection. Yeah. Yes. New Haven.
0: Yeah, um, you know, and and I I know that um, you had mentioned that Ward went to go preach at his at his church. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm interested in Ward's relationship to black leaders in New Haven. You know, I also know, you know, William Grimes was here and, and his was the first fugitive slave narrative. But, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a mix of autobiography and 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 the fugitive slave narrative, which is kind of its own thing. But, you know, Ward also wrote his own autobiography. He was in New York. He was here. And I'm just wondering what you know, what? What was Ward's connection to New Haven as we're sitting in the city right now, especially mm-hmm. to Amos Beeman um, and kind of this long legacy of, of strong black leaders in New Haven?
1: Yes, he, he, had, he had a couple uh, close friendships with uh, Jocelyn mm-hmm. as well as Beeman and came periodically to, to preach in their churches and were, were influenced by them. But these these were these were in his early years. And then we lose as he as he settles in upstate New York and begins wandering around the place lecturing uh, those kind of connections severed. The only one that really remains with it, that has any long-lasting relationship is is the and we've mentioned it before is the one with Frederick Douglass mm-hmm. because they they are they are both comp- they are competing editors to to a significant degree, uh, but they are also uh, deeply involved in 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 the struggle against slavery within uh, an area of upstate New York that is dominated by uh, by Gerrit Smith, uh, are deeply influenced by him. Uh, at a time when Douglass is transitioning from his Garrisonian abolitionist position to one that is closer to, uh, to where Ward sits. Um, so much of that 1840s decade, which is really the pivotal decade for his involvement in American abolitionist activity, he is doing much of that in upstate New York, although he makes forays, long forays into particularly after he becomes an editor because he needs to raise money for his newspaper because all his, his subscribers are not sending him their subscriptions and he's pleading with them. It's a sad story. Unlike Douglas, who, is, who really, I mean, Douglas has his own, his own hardships, but the point is he had support from across the Atlantic as well mm-hmm. uh, that helped him to survive at, in, in hard times. Ward doesn't. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that that may help to explain why those connections with with um, with New Haven come early in his life. Before he moves uh, before he settles in upstate New York.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So and, and those connections are not sustained over time.
0: Mm. Yeah, that, that's interesting because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it was a really those mentions were brief, but they were quite interesting to think about. Um, you know Ward's really intense travel schedule of his of his lectures and and how his sickness probably you know also contributed to yeah. to you know his life of struggle. Um, but yeah, I, I would love to talk more about um his his um, newspaper and um as you mentioned, I think in the in the book you said Douglas had a starting contribution of about four thousand dollars. That's a lot of money, a lot of money, and Ward had about five. I, yes, yes, his newspaper. yes. Um, but uh.
1: And and Douglas had other kinds of help mm-hmm. too. He has English friends who right. came over and helped him uh, edit the newspaper. Uh, Douglas was able after a while to buy his own press. Uh, Ward Ward doesn't have that kind of, uh, but some of his some of his editorials and writing, uh, which are much of which he did on the road. I mean, it's a it's a wonderful kind of Im- image that you have a person who is riding horseback or wherever he is. Uh, Taking whatever time he could away from his going to preach and lecture, uh, writing his editorials, um, so Ward, in that sense, um, I mean, I I, great, I greatly admire Douglas's achievements in, as, as a newspaper editor and his wonderful gift, uh, uh, his command of the language. But but Ward was e- equally gifted. But Jesse didn't have the didn't have that? the resources
0: yeah
1: and if, if you're going to be if you're going to be and if you're going to be a, a newspaper editor in the nineteenth century, you needed a, a lot of luck, uh, but you also needed help and Ward didn't have that kind of help
0: mm-hmm. yeah and i'm I'm wondering if you um can talk about maybe what he was writing about in the in the papers um because I know he merged um his first newspaper, The True American, mm-hmm. and and merged with another newspaper to become the Impartial Citizen. Mm-hmm. Was there a change of, in his development no. of thought over time? No, it was the same. No, it, it,
1: it, it can—we don't have—we don't have—I I haven't found any extant um, mm. issues of his, his early newspapers. I'm sure they must be—it might be out there. Oh, okay. And that's one of the things about doing this kind of project, you know, you, you scour all possible uh, places and leads, and only and and you. Then you, at some point, you go down a dark alley, and you say, "Well, I, there's nothing more to be had down this road." And you reverse and go down another road, mm-hmm. only to find out that you have missed something. So I suspect I would get a note mm-hmm. from somebody who said, "Yes, but I have 15 copies of the impartial citizen," uh, and I would just have to sigh and say, "Sorry, you know, I missed it," but. <laughs> Um, but the, the, Ward's Ward's editorials and his, uh, and as I said, he did most. He did most of the writing. He did, mm-hmm. like many of his contemporary editors, he also reprinted articles from other news, from exchanges that he had with other newspapers. But by and large, on um, Dyke Douglas's newspaper, his didn't reach far and wide. Um, there were subscribers in Philadelphia and there were subscribers up in Boston uh, and in Syracuse where the newspaper was actually printed. Uh, but by and large, his I haven't been able to, to, to find any records of the number of subscribers that he had. He thought he needed a certain number. Mm. He thought he needed 1,500, but he never achieved 1,500 uh, to break even. And that's a number we know from earlier newspaper editors like The Colored American who said, I need about 1,500 in order to break even. And Warden, I don't think he ever got to that kind of number. Mm. Uh, So it's a hand-to-mouth operation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are times his pleas are desperate for Mm -hmm. people to just send me the money. You know, you said you were going to subscribe and I went ahead and sent you the newspaper and you never sent me the money uh and it's it's a sort of sad commentary.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I I, w- I wanted to to return to the subtitle Life of Struggle and we've been mm-hmm. talking about it a little bit in terms of his financial struggles in his earlier life. Um his his family's own fugitivity and um then his sickness, of course. Um and I want to return to Syracuse cuz it's um kind of a pivotal place for him mm-hmm. it seems. Um and you mentioned that after, um, you know, a mob freed freed Jerry McHenry in Syracuse, that Ward fled to Canada and he mm-hmm. never returned to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about how, uh, you know, a life of struggle relates towards life um, outside of the U.S. as well? You know, how did Ward write about his own struggles with racism outside the U.S.? How did he conceptualize that?
1: Uh it's interesting, when Ward moved to, moved to Canada, he wrote a, a Douglas, uh, a dear Fred kind of letter, in which he said, Look, um, I have left. I leave all the madness to you. I, I am a Canadian now, I am not an American. I don't want anything to do with the insanity of American racism and all that kind of stuff. You can have it lock, stock and barrel. It's yours here. Uh, so, but he, he couldn't. He couldn't pull that off. He just couldn't pull that off because after, after decades, uh, two decades of struggle against this sort of thing, it's not something you could w- walk away from. But I think symbolically he tried to sever his connection. It wasn't the first time he tried to leave America. Mm -hmm. He had tried to leave America in the 1830s, in the late 1830s. And then he thought about it again in the early 1840s. So it was always something on his mind uh, that there might be a better opportunity for him somewhere else because America is just unrelenting and refusing to live up to its its vaunted goals and principles. So, um, in that sense, then uh, it, it's a sense of of exile, of self, uh, partly a self-imposed exile, but largely that was his decision to 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 leave the United States. Um, uh, and the, the, then at the end of his his mission to England, uh, his wife. His friends thought he was going to return to Canada and decide, and he he doesn't. He goes to Jamaica. Uh, And and that was the last exile uh, for him. Uh, And it's an exile that I haven't quite figured out. Um, It's driven in part by... He was getting himself involved with some rather unfortunate relationships with borrowing money from people and not paying it back. Uh, and there were rumors that he had been imprisoned and sent to the, the, the infamous English prison in, in, in Van Damien's Island. And, and, and none of that was true. But the point is, Ward uh, had borrowed money from, from a, an Englishman who was emigrating to Canada And Ward promised to repay him when he got back to Canada, but he never had no intentions of going to Canada. He had gone off to Jamaica and gotten himself involved uh, in the religious politics of Jamaica. And uh, Jamaica's religious politics is unique and bizarre. Uh, And this Congregationalist minister becomes involved in a Baptist church. Um, and the Baptists were in in the 1850s and 1860s, uh, splintering like no like like many many religious groups. But in Jamaica, they were they were fighting over over the spoils of of this huge congregation. So there were there were Baptists that were associated with the English Synod. There were Baptists that were associated with the Jamaican Synod, and then there were a group called the Africa, the Native Baptists, who had, uh, who had brought into their ceremonies and their observation of religious observation a lot of African traditions and cultures. So they were completely different. So there are three Baptist strains who are vying for. Uh, for control of churches, uh, and Ward got himself involved in one of those uh, schemes and schisms, uh, and and uh, became head of a a splintered denom- uh, splintered congregation for a long while, uh, and then, but but Jamaica in the eighteen fifties is a society that is racked by all sort of problems, economic, political uh geograph- i mean natural earthquakes smallpox all kinds of it seems as though uh all the things that you can expect not to happen or hope wouldn't happen happened to Jamaica in the eighteen fifties so this wasn't the best of times. there was huge um outflow of of people to central America and other places uh so uh, and the whole economic system is under strain as Ward settles in Jamaica. So what is a man to do who has no background uh, in agriculture, go into a society in which he is supposed to get involved in some kind of agricultural enterprise? Because one of the intellectual things that is driving it is this notion of free labor. If you could produce goods by free labor, uh, then you may be, undermine America, uh, slavery. But Ward has no background, and he, re, he doesn't go to the land. He stays in Kingston. Uh, so he becomes—he he settles in, in, in an environment, in an urban environment, although Kingston in, in the middle of the 19th century is hardly a city, but it's, he, he settles in, in that kind of environment because that's the one that he knows. Uh, and uh, gets himself involved in, in local politics uh, and uh, on the wrong side of the issues. A man, you see, that's one of the ironies of his life that I wish I could make. I, I, one has to have a degree in psychology or something to, to appreciate this. But a man who was at the cutting edge of the struggle to improve the conditions of black people in the United States uh, throws in his lot to some extent with the colonial state once he gets to Jamaica at the point where that colonial state is coming apart. Uh, so he chooses the wrong side. Uh, and he, he sides with the governor who has just committed some of the most atrocious uh, Oppressive uh, uh, results are following the, the Moran Bay Rebellion in, in an attempt to silence the uh, the growing sort of upheaval among the people of Jamaica, um, and Ward fo- finds himself on the wrong side, uh, and that's another struggle. And the the, the, the only thing that <laughs> I I was grateful for is that. He dies before you know we know anymore because I would have to explain it because I I don't know what he would have done <laughs> uh, if he was if he was hoping to get the, the colonial state would get, give him a job or or find some office for him then that wasn't to be either uh, because as a consequence of the rebellion the whole political system changes in Jamaica. Uh, it becomes a crown colony system in which all the power resides in the governor. Uh, so, but it means that I it gave me an opportunity to to see what happens when an an immigrant goes to another place about which he knows very little. Gets involved in in the politics of that place. It doesn't. It 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 doesn't. It didn't come off very well, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And that I, I think, to some extent, is why we people have shied away from from tackling Ward mm-hmm. because his end of life is not what you would expect from a person who is doing all the sorts of things that he was doing prior mm-hmm. uh, to going off to Jamaica. Mm-hmm. So,
0: yeah, I think you know his. His later life is so interesting, and and you know, I was thinking, how do we, you know, grapple with these inconsistencies in the words later life, while also recognizing that he was such a pivotal figure in the movement for abolition in America, yeah. and and it is really an interesting discussion, and I think, you know, one that we can continue to do through this book, and, um, you know, but you had had mentioned in the conclusion that um, even though he had no agricultural knowledge. He did have a desire for land in yes, some ways, yes, and, and yes. kind of like a nostalgia for yes, for yes, land and yes, gardening. Yes, yes. Um, and I found that really interesting in, in his his. He talks to about it all
1: the time. Mm-hmm. I I think it's a retreat for him. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a sanctuary. It's a safe space, but it's one that he knows absolutely nothing about. He couldn't survive off the land. I don't think. I mean, he he grew things on his land wherever he was. He grew, I suppose, garden. He was a gardener Mm -hmm. in that sense, but it it had it had a draw and an appeal to him that 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 eased his burdens any time he got himself in deep trouble in deep uh, either financial or other kinds of trouble. Mm -hmm. He could he he the nostalgia was deep about it. He could reflect back on his father teaching him how to do things on the land when they were settled for that brief period in New Jersey. Uh, and he re- he continued to return to that. But it, for, for Ward, the, the, I think the pivotal struggle is how do you, how does an individual uh, develop something that is his, uh, that he can, that can provide for him, that can uh, both uh, economically and psychically, uh, how d- and how do he, does he then hold on to it? Because there's that wonderful passage in in his autobiography when he says to to young people, "You know, seek something, make it yours, and hold on to it." and he tried, and he never could personally, he never could do it uh, and that's that's what makes him to some extent a a kind of uh a tragic figure um but it's uh but it's one hell of a struggle, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a, a struggle that at times lifts up your spirit because you have, a, a, as an author, to appreciate the kind of determination that the man had to, to confront the system. And you see, I have, I have always maintained that people who attack the American system, the American racial order, pay a terrible personal price. They pay a terrible personal price. They either have to go walk away from it. Uh, they, I mean, in in some of in and and I first saw this when I was writing the book on on the, the, the biographical essays back there in the in the in the nineteen seventies, um, the nineteen eighties when I, I I realized that uh, a couple of the characters sort of, after, after years of struggle, just kind of do things that are self-destructive. And you wonder why. I mean, Pennington, who was a temperance advocate, turned to drink for a time. J. Seller Martin, who was, uh, who, uh, as a form, again, an ex-slave, uh, ended up being a laudanum addict. I don't think that was his fault, but... Because everybody, if you have any aches and pains, the, the people gave you laudanum, which, made it, which is addictive. Uh, but all of those things. And then what happens is their contemporaries turn on them for doing this. Uh, you say it's a weakness. It's a character flaw uh, that you took laudanum to ease pain, uh, then, then, then you became addicted to it. So in that sense, the, these folks paid a, a personal price for uh, for their struggle.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, and I think you know, uh, as we you know come to the conclusion of this really rich conversation, and and we kind of are you you're you're talking about this now, but um, I'm wondering what role do you think, um, or how do you hope Ward's life will impact Black scholars in? and abolitionists in the modern sense today who are still fighting much of the same things that Ward was fighting in his time?
1: Well, I I think he provides a a lesson for us all um, that there's the need to struggle against an oppressive system has to command our attention and our commitment. uh, But at the same time, there's, there's a cost involved in it uh, that may be too great to pay. Uh, and for some people, you may, they, it's understandable that they simply decide, well, look, what I should do is just go to the side that could provide me most. And forget this talk about struggle and oppression and inequality and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but Ward, Ward provides us then with a... a, a Someone, I, I don't want to call, I don't think he is a martyr. He would not have seen himself as a martyr, but he, he has many of the characteristics of somebody who just keeps going on and get every, every road that he goes down seems to end, seems to run into a dead end. Which is depressing in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think he's a figure, I think he's a figure of enormous power and influence and Uh, And and in that that sense, writing the book kind of lifts your spirits because you know here's somebody who, who in spite of everything continued to plug away at it because he didn't see he didn't think he had an alternative but to keep struggling against it. Um, So, but then he goes into exile. And that's a that's a tough one for him. Mm -hmm.
0: That you know. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate um, you being here today and talking with us about Ward, um, about every, you know, aspect of his life, because um, it's such, you know, a tragic but really fascinating life that I think more people should know and and read this story. Um, you know, so th- thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to be with us today.
1: Welcome. I enjoyed it.
0: So um, Samuel Ringgold Ward, A Life of Struggle by R.J.M. Blackett is now available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast as well as information about all of our books.